This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 20th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The end of the blanket federal prohibition on cannabis may be closer than ever now that the president has quietly endorsed the end of interference in state marijuana laws. But as you might expect, congressional action is well behind public opinion. Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, discusses the current state of federal marijuana policy. John Boehner was Speaker of the U.S. House and presided over uh, continued marijuana prohibition. And he said recently that my thinking on cannabis has evolved. And uh, he is now going to be working with a group called Acreage Holdings, along with Bill Weld, who was the governor of Massachusetts and was the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party in 2016, to uh, argue, they're arguing for a shift in federal marijuana policy. And it's, and along with some of the other things we're going to discuss, this has been a pretty rapid transition. Uh, and it's become, it seems like it's becoming more rapid in terms of how public officials, uh, some of whom, uh, almost all of whom are out of office, and uh, at least one of whom is in office, uh, have talked about it. So uh, on, the, on Boehner making this shift, what what do you think led up to that, or what, what do you what do you think this represents? I've scratched my head for a long time about why politicians are seem to be unable to, at least many of them, to come out in favor of relooking at marijuana, looking at the science of marijuana, or maybe just legalizing it because it doesn't really track public opinion. Uh, first, we have medical marijuana coming in, really particularly in the late in the mid '90s, and we still have a Schedule One marijuana that says there are no medical uses, despite states continually allowing medical marijuana use. And we have this idea that politicians tend to track their polls and look at what voters want. And a lot of times voters, at least 80%, according to some polls, want medical marijuana, which would mean by itself that it couldn't be Schedule 1 anymore, a determination made in 1970 that was supposed to be provisional while they looked into more research into marijuana and, and is persistently part of the U.S. code, despite now nine states in the District of Columbia allowing even recreational marijuana use. So you could just say that John Boehner you know, is out of office and he felt the political wins were impossible for him to uh, go the other way on marijuana when he was in office. Um, I, I'm not so sure that they seem to misread the political wins. I think that in many ways they're ideas are changing with these politicians who come around. If they grew up when they grew up, when John Boehner grew up, he's what, I don't know, 55, 60 or something like that, maybe 65. He grew up in a world where marijuana was was considered to be an unbelievably bad drug where people uh, regularly spent five years in prison for, for simple possession. People like Neil Cassidy, who drove the electric Kool-Aid acid bus, who, you know, sent us to long terms for mere possession of marijuana. And that was seen to be a good idea. And they were told that marijuana could do all these horrible things things to you and it was part of the counterculture. So if you grew up in that in that area in that time period, I would I would understand how it would take some time for you to think differently about marijuana and to look at people who smoke marijuana as human beings like you and me uh, who are like people who smoke uh, who drink alcohol and then is humanizing drug users is really the the foundation. Well, dehumanizing drug users is the foundation of the drug war. And so people tend to change their minds on it if you humanize drug users and you just say, hey, look, your neighbor smokes marijuana and he's not uh, a psychopathic murderer or a left-wing communist or things like that. He's just a normal guy. And those kind of things are how we slowly shift attitudes on marijuana. Uh, President Trump in uh, just 
very recently, last week, uh, he has promised a, a Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado that he would not block uh, DOJ efforts to interfere with Colorado's uh, legalization of uh, marijuana. And Cory Gardner uh, said that in exchange, he'll stop blocking all nominees uh, for uh, after Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued his memo that would basically bring back federal enforcement in states that had legalized uh, marijuana. The um, Seattle uh, Times basically says, hold your applause that this is not a, a, a done deal in a way, but it is, it's very interesting to have a president at least admit publicly, essentially, that this is, this is something that we need to examine. I think it's interesting, particularly for this president, who, as we all know, is kind of a, a collection of various political views that d don't normally fit well together, at least in modern political history. And but it doesn't contradict like a lot of what he said on the campaign trail. He, he, it was did not seem to be an important issue to him, and it seemed to be something that he said, look – States do do what you want, and it wasn't it wasn't any part of like the major focus of his campaign. No, I find it interesting too, especially because he has a relationship with alcohol. He he doesn't drink uh, to do his brother. Uh, he doesn't seem to be someone who would generally be for drugs. And I could easily imagine a Donald Trump demonizing all drug use in a way going back to Nixonian type of era where drug use was put into with his political enemies, and his political enemies used marijuana. And, but he didn't do this. He doesn't seem to really care that much about it. Um, Jeff Sessions seems to care much more about this. And it remains to be seen what sort of enforcement actions we won't see in Colorado and Washington and the other states that have legalized. But of course, we just have this very precarious situation where we're asking the federal government to not use powers that is, have been granted to it by the Controlled Substances Act. And we, we need to pass legislation. And, and that was something that Trump mentioned, that he would support some sort of legislative fix where we could say, you're no, you know, either maybe descheduling or rescheduling or just rather than relying on the assurances of the attorney general and some sort of DOJ memo that could change tomorrow, something in the U.S. code that says we are not going to federally prosecute or go after people in states that have legalized marijuana, that would be a much better fix. And it kind of seems like Trump supports that. But with everything with Trump, it's it's hard to predict whether or not he'll continue on that on that line. And it's also it's, it's important to note that uh, the policy change that was the, the Holder memo um, it was just that. And uh, of course, Jeff Sessions did away with that. And without a statutory change, a lot of this is uh, these uh, gains in terms of uh, letting states do whatever they want with regard to policy on cannabis. It's, it's short run. There's not a lot of businesses are probably holding their breath uh, right now, waiting to see whether or not this is something that's going to stick. And without statutes, statutory changes, that's it's hard to see that happening. They definitely the businesses are holding their breath, but they're also still going forward. And and from Boehner's uh, joining of this this business, there's a lot of money to be made in marijuana, and, and entrepreneurs are lining up. And even despite the uncertainty of the federal regime, I think that. They think that in the 10-year span, it's going to get better. And there's no way to sort of – it's hard to imagine it not. I don't see us flipping our entire sociological view of marijuana around and go, going back to the 60s. It's, it's going to get better. And, and this is a precarious time to get involved in the marijuana business. But if you want to be a first mover, it's, it might also be a good time to get involved in the marijuana business. And again, the federal government, even when they were – they had the full enforcement capabilities and, and we could prosecute everyone, which 
they do, but even before the Holder memo, they could always prosecute someone smoking marijuana in their basement, but they didn't. And they could always prosecute even some med- med- medical marijuana businesses, but they didn't because they have limited resources and looking at drug use in states where it's legalized is not something that I'm terribly afraid of them going after to the point of destroying the legal cannabis industry and those states that have legalized. But we need to fix it. It's just it's too precarious to go forward. And businesses, they particularly need to know what's going on with banking and a bunch of other things that they need to rely upon where they could have stiff penalties if they violate federal law. Yeah, it's a hu- it's a it, and it's it's a huge uh, set of contradictions. The uh, businesses that are operating legally in states like Colorado and the you know the growing number of states that have uh, legalized cannabis for either recreational or medical uses, uh, they still pay federal income taxes. They are not allowed to use bank accounts at almost any banks at all if they want to have access to uh, transmission mechanisms uh, across state lines. Uh, And yet the federal government has had this unclear set of policies around whether or not those people are should be in federal prison. Well, one example, one solution to this is sort of what's happening, that if everyone speeds, uh, it's very hard to catch everyone speeding. So if the speed limit is 60 miles per hour, you could say everyone's going to go 70 miles per hour and then the police are going to be like, okay, I guess the new de facto speed limit is 70 miles per hour. With everyone doing this in all of these states, it's, it's just becoming absolutely impossible to enforce. And the banking regulations are a really good example. Although we still don't have clear guidance on the banking regulations and it's still technically true that the under the U.S. code, uh, if you bank a marijuana industry, you are a money launderer. You are just as good as laundering money for the cartels. Uh, and But there are bank accounts for these businesses. It's actually super interesting because despite all the warnings that I would give to any bank wanting to bank a marijuana business, uh, some this one bank in particular in Colorado, which is my home state, has come up where, where it is it is making sure that the businesses that it banks are complying with its own regulations. So it goes and inspects the businesses that it banks to see that the marijuana is locked up, that it's making sure that it's not being diverted, that it's making sure kids aren't going to get it. All these things that it's voluntarily doing, even despite the danger. So even when the enforcement was isn't that big, when there's still holes in the enforcement, which of course there always are, some entrepreneur comes up and says, despite federal law, I'm going to bank you guys and I'm going to put in my own controls to try and make sure that the the federal government doesn't come after us. And so far, I, I know of no bank that has been raided in Colorado on this, and it seems to be working out. But again, uh, it'd be better to do this legally than extra legally and to not rely upon the attention and resources of the federal government not wanting to go after all these people in these states in order to have marijuana, I'm putting this in scare quotes, legal in those states. Um, something that uh, that you've worked on in, in, in a forthcoming book as well is sort of how the federal government has ignored uh, the science on uh, cannabis, and now the the United Nations World Health Organization will review international classifications of marijuana and THC that they declared, WHO declared late last year. CBD, which is a component of uh, marijuana, has no known health problems associated with it. And now the FDA is asking interested persons to provide comment. Uh, Now, is this for a forthcoming regulation or a proposed rule that the FDA is putting together? So the World Health Organization under the UN 
looks at these treaties that are have been signed by international, including the United States, the 1961 Treaty on Psychoactive Drugs, the 1971 Treaty, which was amended, and they say if you are a part of this treaty, then you have to keep these drugs, including marijuana, Schedule One, basically, you have to keep them fully illegal. And so it's often been brought up that we we would be denying our treaty obligations if we fully descheduled marijuana at a federal level. Some people think that we're denying our treaty obligations by allowing states to legalize. But the World Health Organization, like so many other organizations, they did this in the, in the this one is the 1971 one, which is the one that they're acting under now, without looking into the science. It's it's frankly astounding. We use the term Groundhog Day, maybe overuse it, but but going into looking at the science of marijuana and how many different commissions have been set up going back to the 1894 Indian Hemp, Hemp Commission, which was done in India by the British government that had produced a 3,000-page study on marijuana, said it's not a problem, it doesn't seem to have any medical problems. Go, going all the way through uh, the, the 1970 Schaefer Commission, we had a Wooten Commission in the UK in the 1960s, there was a Canadian Commission in the 19. 1970s. There was an ALJ hearing in the 1980s about marijuana administrative law judge hearing. Every single one of those things and more that I could list have all said it's not that big a deal. It doesn't really have any health problems. It should either be legalized entirely or treated like alcohol. And every single time, the governments of the world have ignored it. And now that WHO is asking again, they're asking for commentary for a hearing that they're going to be holding in June of 2018 to look at the scientific reasonings behind the scheduling under the treaty of both Delta 9 THC uh, and other cannabis extracts, include, including CBD and other resins and things like this, and looking for commentary on the state of science that is currently informing that debate. And we could see certain changes in the treaty. It's possible. It doesn't totally have a domestic effect, but it's an example of, of just trying to crawl our way out of this ascientific hole that we dug ourselves with marijuana policy for a century. Uh, and despite all these rungs in the ladder are different scientific studies that say it's fine, it's useful, it has medical benefits, and we still live in a world where marijuana is, is as illegal as heroin. Now, it's a catch-22, and it's one that I hear a lot. And it's a little like uh, once we secure the border, then we can talk about legalizing immigration, <laughs> which, of course, is, is it has its own problems. But it's basically once we get a lot more uh, research about marijuana, then we can move it out of Schedule 1. Yes. And that's that's basically the same thing, which is – you know, as long as it's in Schedule One, how do you do research? You really can't. Um, it, there, it's it's amazing that any research is even done. Uh, this has been a problem in, in 1977. Well, 1972, Normal, uh, the National Organization for Reform of Marijuana Laws, submitted a petition shortly after the Controlled Substances Act was passed to ask that marijuana be rescheduled or that scientific evidence be looked at to see that marijuana is rescheduled, and that. The short story is that that petition didn't get settled until 1994, so 1972, 1994. At one point in the course of that petition, the saga of that petition, the D.C. Circuit, that they, they had asked the DEA to look at the science. The DEA says, well, it has no medical uses, and the, and the normal came back and said, how could we possibly show this? You're, you, you're, not, a, you're not allowing anyone to study it. How could we show demonstrated medical uses when you're prohibiting that? And the D.C. Circuit said, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, you can't do that. You, need, you can't bootstrap in 
that way. You need to allow some amount of studies. But still, it's nearly impossible under the National Institute for Drug Abuse, NIDA, under the DEA. It's nearly it's nearly impossible. It's getting easier uh, to study marijuana. But this is, you know, if we had 50 years of this, we would be able to look at all these sort of things. Some of the things which the U.S. government, when they were studying marijuana in the 60s, partially as a chemical weapon. They were hoping they could put all their troops to sleep. But they discovered all these things that were suppressed. They discovered that any seizure capabilities. They had that it lowered uh, the growth rate of tumors, which was something that was suppressed in the 70s until like they in Israel they discovered it again. They 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 in their studies and the government studies have constantly found medical uses and they've been suppressed and then they've funded different studies that have found medical uses and then they took all that funding away and says well no we only look at abuse uses so they've they've stacked the deck for for 50 years but particularly since, since let's say 70 years since the 50s but particularly since 1970 they've stacked the debt consistently it's amazing that we're at this point with medical marijuana uh, that we're at a, such a point where we we're right on the cusp when the government has tried to has played with a loaded deck the entire time that so many people just obviously know the benefits of medical marijuana and it is a, even aside from recreational if you have glaucoma like medical marijuana is the best way of treating that that's been known since the 70s all these things we still live in this primitive regime but we might be able to see the light soon so you mentioned treaty obligations and signatories to uh, certain treaties a treaty or treaties have uh, as long as they're on that then as long as they're a signatory to that treaty they must keep uh, marijuana at its highest their highest level of illegality and enforcement but do treaty obligations as far as the US is concerned does that bind states in any way it's an interesting question uh, it probably does not it, it does not it depends on the relationship between treaties and the constitution which is which is a different thing i think we discussed before a case that came up bond versus us that dealt with this of whether or not a chemical, chemical weapons, weapons treaty right. yes and the right now the relationship between treaties and the constitution is that uh, is that the congress can obtain powers it didn't have under the Constitution by signing a treaty, which is ridiculous. That goes back to a 1918 case. And so you have to look at these three moving parts, the relationship between the Constitution, the federal government and the states, uh, and then the relationship between the federal government and its international obligations. It shouldn't affect the states because the, the Congress should not be able to do anything that's unconstitutional under its treaty obligations. The law is pretty precarious in that situation. I think it's best to say that so much of international law is customary in its own way that we haven't really treated it as acting on the states. Some people have made these arguments, but but they're not overriding Colorado and other states' uh, legalization of marijuana, and the international community isn't up in arms about it. So, so I think it's unclear legally, but customarily, it doesn't seem to affect the states. When I was uh, it, vacationing in uh, Washington State uh, late last year, I saw billboards that were basically saying, you know, states that have legalized marijuana have lower rates of opioid abuse and addiction. And I thought, well, I get why somebody would put a billboard up that says that because, it's, you know, marijuana is legal in, in Washington and uh, presumably the people behind who are funding that billboard want to sell you some. Um, but then I talked to Jeff Singer, uh, a Cato Senior Fellow here, who's a, a physician and surgeon, and he said, "No, there is some really striking evidence about that." And you know, given the opioid or fentanyl heroin crisis in the United States, there may be some uh, more 
uh, wiggle room that, that states are going to have going forward. And this is something else that we knew uh, from government studies going back to the 60s and 70s <laughs> is that marijuana had very good uh, pain relief capabilities to it. Uh, even some forms of marijuana were suggested to be used for light pain relief in such dentistry and things like these. I said this, this could be a possible use of marijuana going forward. And no, it's never going to be as as absolutely pain deadening as, a, as an opiate uh, and it's never going to fix all the problems that opiates solve but if you think about people who are addicted to opium opiates of different sorts and some of them many of them because they have pain and this is the best solution to their pain and many of those people it seems like we're not sure and we have some pretty good studies and we need to do more many of them could substitute marijuana for their pain relief uh, for opium. Uh, and so it's exciting. It's not going to solve the opium problem, but it mitigates it in these states. And we need to definitely do more scientific research. Trevor Burris is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 